1: I have a feeling that this Arsenal Vision podcast is going to have the best analysis yet. How do I know? Because other people are on it. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Okay, look, I realize that promotions aren't everybody's favorite part of a podcast, and I fully appreciate that, and I I recognize that you're here for the content, but a lot of you have been kind enough to sign up for The Athletic uh, with the promotion we've been running, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, and what I've been saying along the way is if you do that, um, it helps the pod because it helps us secure some great guests that only make the pod better, and uh, we had Amy Lawrence on already, which was awesome, well, now We've got two guests, James, who you know as Gunner Blog, James McNicholas, will be on. And before that, Michael Cox, who you know from his Twitter handle, Zonal Marking, and from the website, ZonalMarking.net, who now writes for The Athletic, and did a really interesting article about the Derby and Lacazette's role in that, and just sort of Emery's tactics generally. He's on as well. So, look, I, I get it. The promotional stuff isn't always the most fun, but the nice thing is that we get to put out an even better podcast, and you get to hear Michael Cox and James on this pod as well as well as clive and paul we can't fix everything so they're coming up as well so really a bumper podcast to help kick the rust off of the uh off the premier league and the interlull wrapping up and now we can get back to the real football so i'm very very excited about that and i just want to say thank you and if you do want to sign up for the athletic at theathletic.com forward slash arsenal vision you do get a free month to try it out see if you like it and then the whole thing is half off after that i mean 250 i think is what it comes out to a month so like You know, we really do appreciate it. It does help us. And as you're seeing on this podcast, it does help us secure guests that I think make the pod better. So hopefully a win for everybody. With that out of the way, a little more housekeeping. Um, Over on Patreon, we're doing something called Project 36. There's a predictor going around and it expires tonight at midnight UK time. So if you're a patron and you want to go fill that out, uh, you can find it on Patreon or on the Discord. Uh, we're going to give away a shirt to the person who's most accurate with that prediction and then do a podcast using the data from that to see what people expect from the run of the next 12 games because the next 12 games, pretty interesting run. We've got a good opportunity to pick up a lot of points and it gets harder from there. So hopefully we will do that. I think that's just about enough waffle for me. I just want to say we've missed you. We we really appreciate you and we're excited to to come back and have a lot more podcasts coming up in the future. We've got plenty of stuff planned. So Hopefully, you'll stick with us and that this is a good way to get back into the swing of things. So, first Michael Cox, then James McNicholas, then Clive and Paul. It's all on tap. We'll take a quick break and come back with Michael after this. All right, now onto the real business of actually doing the podcast, and first up is Michael Cox. You know him on Twitter at zonal underscore marking, and from his phenomenal writing about tactics and football generally, uh, you can, of course, find him on The Athletic, as mentioned, and I am thrilled to have him here now. Hello, Michael. Hi, Elliot. Yeah, good to chat with you. So, the article that got me really excited to have you on the pod, which could have really been any article you've written in the past several years, but in this case, was the one about Lacazette's role in the North London Derby, and his attempt to sort of play false nine, connect the midfield to the attack, and sort of ape the Firmino role. And I think one thing that Arsenal fans are really curious about is how the Aubameyang, Lacazette, Pepe front three is going to function, if it can function as a trio, and connect to the midfield, who will play provider. So maybe you could start by just sort of recapping some of the things you discussed in that article, concerns you might have about Lacazette trying to play more of that Firmino false nine role.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was an interesting setup from Emery. It was obviously the first time he's played those three you mentioned together as as the front three. Um, but then he had a really kind of flat, quite defensive, quite unadventurous midfield, um, which isn't to say they didn't play well. You know, I think Guendouzi obviously was excellent and got that great assist for Aubameyang's goal. But when I saw the team sheet, I thought, you know, who's who's going to be connecting those two? Trios, really. I mean, there was no Ozil. Ceballos came on later. Mkhitaryan had a go when he came on for Lacazette. Obviously, he's no longer uh, a factor. But I just think when you when you play that kind of system, you need either your your outside midfielders or one of your forwards to kind of drop between the lines or almost become a temporary number ten. And I think the way Arsenal were looking to do it, having looked, you know, watched the game twice, went back and just watched Lacazette specifically, it seemed to be the idea was you know, Lacazette would drop in, become a number 10, be that kind of Firmino player. So, um, you know, as always, you get a little bit of uh, stick in the comments section, people saying hey, he's he shouldn't, you know, why he's trying to say he should play like Firmino. And I wasn't saying really that he should. It was more that I think that's what he was trying to do. Um, but while he had the right idea, and I thought he received the ball in good positions, which can be the most difficult thing when you play that role, I thought his actual passing was, I mean, constantly... Overhit passes quite badly towards uh, Abamyang and Pepe, so I thought it was an interesting development, but I would say not a particularly successful experiment with that system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think people are always going to be defensive of their players, as we know hashtag tribalism. But like uh, he, what he does well is, I think he presses well. He drops into midfield to help defensively. Um, I think he can hold the ball up reasonably well. I tend to agree with you that his distribution isn't his best quality. And, you know, we saw with the goal he scored in the game, he is a penalty box number nine. Like, he's not a false nine. He is really good in the box. But one of the issues that also came from this game is that Aubameyang and Pepe sort of regularly had chalk on their boots, so to speak. They were really out wide. So do you think part of getting this trio to work, if they're all going to play together, is closing those distances and having them closer to one another and how do you think Emery can try to accomplish that if you think that's important
2: yeah I mean I think I think you're probably right I think it probably is preferable if those who play in that manner I mean especially with the way that um you know you weren't going to get any width or any real thrust from from midfield runs going in behind the the forward three um so I think they had to cover a lot of uh, a lot of width I mean i, I I'm kind of unconvinced by the idea of Aubameyang and and Lacazette regularly playing in the same team, um, which might sound strange because one, they're both clearly very good players and two, they get on off the pitch seemingly very well. But I mean, Aubameyang's pretty uh, clear in saying that he wants to play up front. He thinks that's his best position. Lacazette, I think unquestionably his best position is up front. And of course was, uh, I think I'm right in saying Arsenal's player of the season last year, but I've never been particularly convinced by Arsenal overall when those who have played together as a front two, I think when when Emery's played a diamond, um, or even the three four one two, just the rest of the team either lacks creativity or lacks width, or it just doesn't quite feel right. And I do think this is a bit of a puzzle um, for Emery, Emery about how to accommodate the two of them. Um, that he, I haven't been convinced that he's really got any ideas on how to solve that personally.
1: Well, it's sort of a catch-22, because I agree, Aubameyang wants to play through the middle, but you get the sense that he wants to play with Lacazette. They have this bromance, Mm -hmm. this relationship, and there was some social media tomfoolery where someone asked the question why Lacazette didn't start against Liverpool, and he said, good question, and I think Aubameyang liked the post or something like that. I mean, they clearly have each other's back and sort of want to play together, but it would seem that that runs contrary to Aubameyang's desire to play through the middle. You mentioned the back three. It's a much loathed formation uh, in the Arsenal diaspora at the moment just because of how dire it was towards the tail end of last season. But it can be a very attacking formation. And I wonder when Bellerin and Tierney are involved, if they're providing the width, could a 3-4-3 let those three forwards concentrate more on being in and around, as they say, in and around the box, as opposed to providing the natural width? I mean, do you think a back three with wing backs, especially as talented as those two coming back, could un- unlock... Better spacing and, and utilization of those three together.
2: Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think it's it's certainly an option, and I agree that you know Arsenal will end up with, you know, hopefully in about a month or two, we'll, we'll end up with better uh, attacking options from fullback or wingback than they've currently got at the moment. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, I guess you have to look in centre of defence, where Arsenal are not particularly well stocked for talent, albeit they do now have uh, you know a player in David Luiz who has played successfully. Um, as a sweeper in a back three. Um, I mean, yeah, I certainly think it's uh, it's an option. I'm not sure how you would necessarily accommodate uh, Pepe in that system, Um, which I don't think is a, a huge issue. I don't think he's the kind of player who has the status or the reputation at the moment that he has to be playing every week, but obviously having spent quite a lot of money on him, and I think brought him in to solve a genuine need, which was... You know, a proper winger or proper wide player who can score goals, you, you wouldn't want to turn to a system that that he's you know slightly struggling to get in. So I, I, I think Emery, as always, is going to experiment with systems and formations over the coming weeks. But you know, even even now, I'm not entirely sure what the best solution is. Um, I mean, I'd suggest as as with uh, many Arsenal fans, I suspect you know Ceballos is a more creative and more uh, forward-thinking midfielder than, the, than any of the three who played uh, against Tottenham um, and you have to think after you know another disappointing Xhaka performance that um, Emery must be looking at playing Torreira, Ceballos and Guendouzi which personally I know there's no defined holding midfielder in there but I think that is a three that can work in terms of the you know the tenacity and the, the work rate and the ball winning skills that you need.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I have the slight suspicion that the seas will have risen above ground level, and Shaka will still be getting picked by Emery to start in central midfield. But uh, I certainly agree with you that you would think that would be an area he could move away from. You mentioned Ganduzi having a great uh, a great game in the Derby, and he's a player that a lot of people were on really quickly, Arsenal supporters, uh, and embraced him and and thought very highly of him. Others not really sure what to make of him and thought some of the praise was over the top and a little too early. Obviously. Starring in the Derby helps, but I'm curious. Do you have a feel for the kind of player he will develop into and where his role should be? I mean, he's looked good at the base of midfield, but he had a wonderful assist stepping into a more advanced midfield role late in the Derby. Do you have a sense of what kind of player he might be developing into?
2: Uh, to be honest, no. <laughs> I must be <laughs> Fair completely enough. honest and say when uh, when he played last season, I, I wasn't particularly convinced by him. I, I thought he looked decent <laughs> enough, but. Um, Yeah, I wasn't blown away, but I think a couple of times this season um, I think he actually showed some good touches in the first half away to Liverpool, was it? I thought he had Mm -hmm. a good first half um, and was excellent in this game. So yeah, I, I must say I struggled to place him really. I kind of thought his best position was maybe as one of the two in holding midfield, but so far this season I think he's shown a little bit more in terms of being able to get past the press and being able to carry the ball and certainly the assist to Bamayang was a I mean, I just thought a really strange pass, obviously a fantastic pass, but it just it didn't look like the angle was on. It had to be absolutely right. Um, So, yeah, maybe in his second season, he'll show a little bit more going forward. But I think it's clear that, you know, Emery's got quite a lot of options in, in central midfield, actually. I mean, not necessarily, you know, top class players, all of them. Guendouzi is still developing and and Xhaka I think everyone's got concerns about but I think they are all different types of players Xhaka, Guendouzi, Torreira and Ceballos and for a manager who loves experimenting and chopping and changing in terms of systems you think that's probably a pretty good situation for him albeit those of us who are concerned that he chops and changes too much um, you know might, might think that's a little bit of a bad thing as well.
1: Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, you mentioned the pass from Ganduzi to Aubameyang, and the run really makes the pass, as they say. It's it's a brilliant run from Aubameyang, but what almost impresses me more is Ganduzzi gets the ball uh, a little deeper in midfield, and he sees that he's got room to split two midfielders and drive beyond them, and he drives beyond them out of trouble, and then instead of doing what so many of the midfielders under Emery have done, which is just give it to the fullback, you know, give it to uh, Kolasinac, he looks up, he squares his body, he sees that there's an angle, and he makes the pass, and I think you know, Shaka has defaulted to spraying the ball out wide a lot. We've had a lot of static midfielders since Santi Cazorla who haven't been able to sort of step through those tight spaces and create openings for those passing angles. I think Ceballos can do that. I think Joe Willick can do that to some extent. I think even Torreira has a little of that. And so now there are slightly more mobile athletic options in midfield. What's still unclear is who that connector is going to be. And that raises the specter of Mesut Um, such a talented player, but really hard to say where his head is at right now with what he went through again this summer and you know, where his physical level is, having not played much. He had a good preseason. You know, for observers of Arsenal's preseason, he looked great, but we haven't seen him in the regular season, in the, in the Premier League season. So I'm curious, and obviously you'd have no way of knowing, but if you had to guess, do you think that there is a role for Mesut Ozil in this team and that finding that role for him could really be the key to unlocking the connection between the lines? Yeah, I mean,
2: if em- if Emery wants to play that system, the four three three, I think Lacazette's obviously, got to play. Aubameyang's got to play, um, and I would think that the natural role, really, for Ozil would be playing on the right of the front three, where you know hopefully he'll have Bellerin overlapping him soon, so there'd be width provided down that side, and Ozil would be in that kind of inside right position that I think he, he really likes and has played so many great assists from that position towards players who would be playing in in Aubameyang's kind of role so I'd like to think there's still a role for him I mean you know as you say we don't really know what his personal situation is and I'm I've never quite got my head around his relationship with Emery I'm not sure whether that's uh, Emery doesn't like him personally or doesn't like his application or doesn't like the tactical role that he plays but um I mean it seems a Bit of a, I mean, I thought in that game towards the end uh, against Tottenham, I mean, you know, Urza was just sitting on the bench and Mkhitaryan was coming on and running into traffic and it just felt like such a waste that Ozil was an unused substitute. Like I say, we don't know the reasons, but I thought Arsenal were crying out for a player in that mould, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. We, we were joking on another podcast that it's starting to feel like, and actually uh, James Gunnerblog coming up later in this pod talks a little bit about how Arsenal sold Iwobi, got rid of Nacho Monreal, loaned out Mkhitaryan It feels like they're removing all of Emery's preferred options to sort of um corral him into picking the players that they think need to be on the pitch. And I wonder if that will lead to more playing time for Ozil himself. That um that gives us an opportunity to sort of transition to Emery a little bit. And I'm curious to get your sense. I mean as as someone who writes about tactics a lot and likes interesting tactical concepts, you know, Emery changes enough to keep you busy. Do you like that Emery is a pragmatist? That he changes a lot. Do you worry that maybe the failure to implement a first choice system is holding the team back? Where do you where do you stand on his performance at Arsenal so far and his decision to to sort of constantly change it up?
2: I mean, I think he is. Yeah, he is naturally very pragmatic, and it kind of made me laugh at the start last season when he talked about how you know he wanted to play good attacking football and possession football. And I think broadly, if you're a top team, you have to you have to attack because. You have to win a lot of games and you generally end up with more of the ball. But I don't think that is remotely a, a factor in in Emery's kind of thinking. I, I kind of have some sympathy for him last season because I think there was some some injuries and some selection problems at certain times that many kind of had to change system. But uh, towards, the end of, uh, towards the end of the season, sorry, I became quite frustrated with... Um, I just thought there were some basically some bad decisions. I mean, I remember there was that Monday night game away at Watford that I was covering. Um, and of course, Arsenal basically basically won the game almost by default by being gifted a goal and being, you know, Troy Deeney having a crazy moment and getting a red card in the first five, ten minutes. But then from there, you kind of just thought, OK, this is a game where Arsenal one no up, one man up, they can just kind of fall back on their natural style and they should see the game out well but they they didn't really have a natural style and it ended up with Emery switching to a back three and then back to a back four or maybe it was the other way around I can't remember but there was he basically changed to one system then changed away straight away when it wasn't working and I thought that kind of just you know showed what Arsenal were lacking Um, and it just seems such a contrast from obviously the, the previous 20 years when they had such a a defined system to fall back on. And of course their weakness at that point was, I think they were technically naive a lot of the time, but it does seem like, uh, as is often the case when you have uh, one manager replacing another, it sometimes feels like Arsenal have gone from one extreme to the other.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. I think you could see where some of the pragmatism and, and tinkering was effective in big games where Arsenal were not as easily exposed uh, with the exception certainly of Liverpool last season and City away where a lot of people were exposed. But then you saw the the shortcomings of that approach against some of the smaller teams, where we really struggled to impose our football on those teams and and rack up the goals and and get three points instead of one or zero in some cases. So <laughs> it'll be interesting to see if he can find a system now because he's been given a lot of attacking talent, attacking fullbacks that'll be coming back into the side, more athletic, uh, agile, attack minded midfielders, and and the team looks set to to play that kind of football you know as Arsenal fans we look at Chelsea and United and even Spurs to some extent and see a lot of flaws there and I think we presume that this squad should be finishing in the top four and that if Emery fails to do that that it is a real failure and I'm curious for you as someone who who isn't observing as an Arsenal supporter do you see Arsenal in that way do you see Arsenal's team as being clearly one of the four best and should be finishing top four given the challenges facing teams specifically like Chelsea and United
2: yeah, I, I pretty much agree with you. And I also would view it in... Uh, I'd come to a similar conclusion from a different perspective, which is that I know Emery has not yet convinced his manager of Arsenal, but he does have a track record elsewhere of basically getting the job done, um, you know, winning lots of Europa Leagues um, and basically finishing inside the top four. And you compare that with Solskjaer and Lampard, who manages really with no track record at this level. Um, I think the combination of, of the squad, as you mentioned... And the manager um means that yeah Arsenal should be I mean to be honest before this you know in the summer, I had them finishing fourth, and then after the the transfer business, which I think they did pretty well with um and having watched Tottenham and being unconvinced by them and some kind of murmurings of unhappiness I, I've actually you know changed, and I think Arsenal should finish third so um if they if they get lower than that and finish fourth, no problem, but I think if they have a second year outside the Champions League places, then there will be, there will be questions because it's a funny top six at the moment where there's two who are miles clear and then United and Chelsea, who I think are both significantly weaker than they were, you know, two years ago. So yeah, I I think it's really important for Emery that he finishes uh, in the top four. Um, And, and also because, you know, if it gets to February or March or April and Arsenal are looking on course to finish uh, in the top four, there won't be such a pressure on the Europa League, you know, because obviously Arsenal last couple of seasons must have played what about nearly thirty games combined in the Europa League, exclusively to try and get back into the Champions League. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think doing without that pressure should be uh, should be beneficial.
1: Well, we'll we'll get a a look pretty soon at how he tries to rotate the squad because last season he was really trying to I think build a camaraderie and a chemistry and a, an understanding within the squad and used a lot of first team players in the Europa League group stage. It will be interesting to see how he does with the Europa League group stage this season. So as a last question, you mentioned Pepe earlier. I just wanted to sort of pick your brain about that player, whether you watched him much in Ligue 1 and what you think so far of his arrival. Very direct, um, obviously nearly impossible to live with off the dribble. Seems like it was between him and Zaha, and and I'm personally thrilled that we went with him, but do you have any sort of early returns on, on his Arsenal debut and what you expect from him?
2: No, I mean, I must say, I saw a lot of him, but only in in highlight form, to be honest. I I can't remember watching many full matches of him, and I think sometimes that can paint a false impression of wingers in particular. I mean, all players, but particularly wingers. I mean, my views so far are probably, um, you know, pretty in sync with with most Arsenal supporters, which is that he's been extremely dangerous and extremely promising. Um, But the end product... uh, times has been not just wayward but <laughs> slightly uh slightly comically bad um but certainly that doesn't seem to have been a theme of his previous uh his previous career and and like i say a few people thought oh arsenal are buying an attacking player when that they need to strengthen elsewhere and i kind of get that but i thought arsenal lacked goals from you know aside from the front two last year and uh you know when i think back to the the best Arsenal sides that I've seen, albeit in a different system, it was always Overmars or Pires or Jungberg, you know, Arsenal kind of defined by wide players who could score goals. And I, I do think that they lack that. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm pretty positive about the season he should have coming up, but like with with every Arsenal attacker, um You know, it comes back to the question of the system, and I guess we're still waiting to see precisely what Emery wants to do there.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no question that Emery's been handed the tools to craft an effective attack, so I think there's a lot of pressure on him to do that. Football will have you tearing your hair out, because last season we had a Wobi playing a lot, Um, a very technically secure, competent, connecting player who could carry the ball into the final third, not particularly dynamic or exciting didn't have a shot on him didn't have a great final ball on him now we have this extravagant dynamic athletic dribbly dangerous winger who doesn't have a final ball or a good shot on him at least yet so from one extreme to the other but hopefully he finds it i i think we should leave it there uh, just as a very very last quick thing michael enjoying your your early time at the athletic so far
2: yeah i am it's been um it's been really exciting to be part of and i've got to do some different stuff so the uh, the article I did the weekend was something completely different. I went to uh, a first or first qualifying round of the FA Cup, which is you know semi professional level. A yeah, game between sides who are essentially in the eighth and ninth division, and I spent a few days with uh, the home team, looking at their preparations and their tactics, and you know, got in on their set piece plans and what they were looking to do in open play and how they scouted with the opposition, and wrote about how it all came together on uh, on match day. So that was something you know I wouldn't have done before, and uh, you know that's what I think they're trying to do, trying to do different stuff that you don't find elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, hopefully if people have signed up, they're enjoying it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I know I am. And, uh, your rundown of the top tactical teams of the 2010s is fun as well. So look for more, uh, a continuing series there. In any event, uh, we'll, we'll let you go, Michael. I really appreciate you coming on. Obviously great chat. We'll hope we get to do it again. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Zonal underscore marking and read him at The Athletic. Thank you, Michael.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Elliot.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. So we're going to take a break and do what they say. Uh, the podcast goes from strength to strength because James McNicholas, as you know, Gunner Blog, will be up after the break. Stay with us. More after this. Okay, it's time to tell you about The Athletic, the new home of football writing and a world class sports website. You can get The Athletic for half off and a month trial right now if you go to theathletic.com forward slash arsenal vision. You'll help the pod. And of course, you'll help the athletic too. But that's a good thing because you will be at the new home of football getting world class writing and the best coverage of Arsenal from writers like Amy Lawrence, whom we love, has been on the pod, David Ornstein, James McNicholas, also known as Gunnerblog, myself, but don't let that hold you back. The coverage of sports is unrivaled and there's no advertising to get in the way, no clickbait. They're not chasing ad revenue. They're just trying to write great, in depth articles. They've broken some incredible news, they've had some incredible interviews. Loved the article about the Eddie and Ketia load to Leeds and how that came about. So there's a lot to like there. Try it out. It's a month free. And then if you stick with it, it's two fifty dollars a month. That's it. So you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and try it now. See what all the buzz is about. Go sign up now. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. Okay, we're back. And as mentioned, James McNicholas, you know him as Gunnerblog, and one half of the amazing Arscast Extra is here. We are thrilled to have him. Hello, James. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So uh just real quick, Big J journalist James now. You're uh you are in the fold of the athletic and I, I'm just curious before we actually get into the article you're writing and, and anon, uh, how are you liking it?
3: It's been fun so far. I mean, being a big grown-up journalist does have its complications. I have to wear, you know, shoes with laces now yes. and things like that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> I have to wear pants. It's not acceptable for me to interview people in my dressing gown anymore, mm. which is a real shame. But yeah, it's good and it's great that you've got this relationship which finally enables you to get me on a podcast. Who would ever have thought? What a coup. For you. What
1: a, what a coup I'm for so, me. Yeah. That I'm can... so
3: podcast shy generally.
1: Yes. Uh, I... I am a podcast whore, as everybody knows. Uh, but but yes, I, I have to say how great it is for you that you can help me by being on the podcast. Thank you for that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it's my pleasure. It's a long time listener. Great to be. Long time here. caller.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, now that we got all the pleasantries out of the way, you uh, you wrote a great article, as you are wont to do. Um, and this one was about Reese Nelson and the opportunity has this season. And within that article, I think is sort of an interesting perspective on the club steering. Emery maybe towards the the decision-making from a lineup standpoint that they may prefer. Uh, there's some speculation inherent there, but maybe we can just talk about the club literally selling all of the left-wing options out from under him, uh, paving the way for Reese Nelson and and your perspective on, on how that's shaken out.
3: Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, if you'd said to me last season that neither Alex Iwobi nor Henry O'Katarin would be here you know, for the majority of this campaign, I don't know if I would have believed it. I mean, there was a time last season where it seemed that Emery was really uh, pretty reliant on those guys and they were sort of a fundamental to a lot of his tactical approach, certainly in the first half of the campaign. Uh, and, you know, they were guys that he used and if you talked about what is an Unai Emery wide player, their names would have been sort of the archetype, really, in terms of what they were the closest thing we had to what we thought he might want. And now they're both gone. So uh, that has opened the way for Reese Nelson. But like you say, it's ca- kind of forcibly put upon Unai Emery. And I think it's really interesting, actually, the three players, senior players who've departed in the last stage of the transfer window, Monreal, Iwobi, Mkhitaryan, they're all guys I think we know Unai Emery likes or certainly guys that he's picked pretty regularly uh, and I think that's that's the new system in action isn't it that's the new hierarchy that's the fact that some of these decisions are being made above his head um, and I did speak to someone this week who said there was a little bit of tension around the the Montréal situation in terms of Emery wanting to hold on to him and make sure he played in that derby but the club wanted to get the deal done and make sure it was financially secure and they got what little cash they did for him and, and got him off the books so it, it is interesting and I think it I don't know if it goes so far as to say it weakens his power base, but I think it definitely shows there's a, a strategic level of thinking that goes above Unai Emery and, and maybe beyond Unai Emery.
1: Yeah, I have this vision. Have you seen those um, sort of dry erase board images that are going around the internet where it's like the his lineup written in and then under each starter there's two names of like the next guy that would be up to come in and then the next guy yeah. beneath that? I have this image of like, Raul sneaking in there at night and just erasing the name above <laughs> until it's just the names of the guys he wants to start. Because I think you could also make the argument that like this also sort of forces him to use the Pepe Obamyang, Lacazette yeah. front three more. Um and you know, it it's cynical to say it, but he can't make lineup decisions that management doesn't prefer if he doesn't have any other lineups that he can use. So then with that in mind I mean, one of the criticisms I had for Emery last season, and as you know, I, I'm not a particularly critical individual by nature, but uh, sure. <laughs> my, my criticism, one of them was was the way he used the squad in the group stages of the Europa League. We have a 12-game run that we are calling hashtag Project 36 around here, and it's it's got a lot of winnable games, but interspersed there is the Europa League. So I'm curious... Do you think that this time around, with Emery now having been in the, the job a little longer, been able to impart whatever system you know he's trying to impart on these players is, will be more willing to trust the likes of Nelson in particular, Martinelli, Saka, uh, certainly Willock. You know he's he's willing to trust already. I mean, how how do you mm. see him opting to rotate once the European fixtures come back?
3: It'll be really interesting because last season he opted primarily for seniority. I think in, in some cases against advice he was receiving from the from the performance team who felt that, you know, rotation would be beneficial. Unai Emery clearly felt that he needed to establish a culture. Uh, and so we're sort of looking for some of these senior guys, taking them on trips so that they weren't always happy. To be on, I think he needs to rotate more this year. I mean, we talk about young players getting a chance, but it's going to be by necessity partly, isn't it? I mean, we suddenly it feels like we haven't got the the deepest squad in certain areas, and we're going to need people like Nelson, Martinelli, Willock to step up. I, I have some concerns. For example, you know, we go to Germany next week, and I, you know, people are expecting us to play a, a really understrength side. I, I fear that we could get beat. If we do that, I mean, we're not playing do, against. Does jokers. that matter? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I guess it depends on your perspective in the competition. I mean, it may not matter ultimately. We may be able to get out of the group by by hook or by crook. But I think it's important that we do get out of the group, doesn't it? I mean, I think it would be. It, it remains a, a, an important thing that we progress in this competition, even if I think we probably will. Oh, I hesitate to say it, but I think we have a better chance of making the top four this year than we did uh, certainly last season. I still think we need to get out of that group. I still think that it's important that we need to try and progress mm. into the later stage of that competition. But uh, so I think it will be about balance. You know, I think we will see, you know, Nelson, we will see Willett, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were one or two senior players in there. What I think is important is that he doesn't necessarily take, you know, a guy who could be staying at home, give him 20 minutes, run out at the end of the game. I think he needs to, when he rests somebody, rest them properly and not necessarily make them part of that traveling group.
1: Yeah, the, the one good thing, I guess, is if you need to bring some of the the really good players and leave them on the bench is that we're not flying to Eastern Europe. You know, we're not flying yeah. to Asia. Uh, thankfully, it's United that, that got that kind of group this year. So, mm. like, you know, if you have to fly the 45 minutes to Germany or whatever it winds up being, I, I apologize for my... Uh, lack of knowledge about flight times from the UK to Western Europe, but...
3: It's a bit longer than that, but not by much.
1: You know, I mean, it's just like people who don't realize how big Texas is, right? Yeah, sure, sure. It's two sides of the same coin. Um, Moral of the story is I I think that those trips are are at least a little less harmful. And and my point about does it matter if we were to lose in Germany is not that I don't want to get out of the group, but more that there's very, very few scenarios I could see even with weakened sides where we don't win all of our home fixtures, draw one more, and you're out of the group with 10 points, I'm guessing. So... You know, it's such an easy path. And look, League Cup is coming back as well. I mean, surely we would see a a more rotated squad for that. He got a little unlucky last season with the Spurs tie coming up so early in League Cup and having to make some tough decisions there. But overall, I mean, with respect to Nelson, um, we've seen a little of him in the Premier League already. Do you have an expectation that he could kick on and and become a a contributing part of the first team this season?
3: I think so. I mean... I do think that left wing spot is quite interesting. Um, you know because we kind of assume that Emory's gonna go with the front three fairly regularly, or, or at least we're hoping that I think as a lot of a lot of fans are hoping that. but I'm not convinced it'll be that consistent. you know I just. When I look at Unai Emery and I look at that and I look at what it does to the shape of our team, I wonder if he's just fundamentally a a bit more conservative than that in his approach. Mm. And I do wonder if he likes to include someone who you'd count as more of a a playmaker in that front three. You know, I mean, people will scoff at the idea that Alex Wobby was a playmaker, but, you know, someone who has a bit more of a creative bent. And Nelson does fit that profile. Um, Although I have to say, I recently had the opportunity to read... Merzaka's um, book uh, which is he wrote with Raphael Honigstein uh, and it's being translated into English I think and it will be out very soon in English but he talks about it um, the World Cup campaign which Germany successful where Meza Ozil was the guy stationed on that left wing and played there throughout the tournament until the final when he switched into number 10 during the final and did a pretty decent job of it so you know, Unai could be faced with a choice between a, a very inexperienced player in Reese Nelson at the beginning of his career and another in Meza Ozil who is right at the outset of his. But mm. he's another player who, for whom the Europa League, sounds crazy to say it, of our highest paid player, but that's <laughs> one of his premium opportunities to actually play a game.
1: Yeah, it, it's a bizarre situation. By the way, real quick, love the humble brag that you had early access to Murtisacker's book in English before <laughs> it's been released. Enjoyed that. Um, so we'll get that out there. It, well, it is an interesting one. Let's talk about Ozil for a second. Because, like, I do think that the challenge, if he wants to play a flat three in midfield like he did against Spurs, is connecting the midfield to the attack. And there's a few ways you could do that. He could go back to a 3-4-3 three, three to, to get width from uh, wingbacks instead of, of wide forwards. And that would get hmm. the front three a little closer together. Um, he could press a little higher up the pitch like he did second half in the derby. But he could pick two from three and let Ozil float. Between the lines, between the the attacking and midfield line, as a connector, is there a way back for Mesedozo? I mean, there's a part of me that cynically thinks there was some link with him and the and Major League Soccer MLS. And mm-hmm. when you might say the window is closed, I don't think that applies to MLS. So, I mean, is it a possibility that this is a player who is in the departure lounge and we just don't know it yet?
3: I don't think so. I have to say, I, I don't think Mesut Ozil is, is inclined to leave Arsenal or to leave London at this point. Uh, and I, I have a certain degree of sympathy with that. I mean, you know, he's on a fantastic contract. He's very happy. He, well, he was very happy. I mean, well, that he was, yeah, was, that was going to be my next point. Yeah. <laughs> knife,
1: knife attack notwithstanding, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> knife attack notwithstanding Um, but assuming that he has got over that and let's not underestimate that is a pretty significant trauma I think he will be here I think he will play games as well but I think they'll be pretty selective games you know and they'll be in the cup competitions or home games in the Premier League I can see him starting the trouble with Ozil is he's such an ineffective sub that If he's not in the starting eleven, he might as well not be in the squad to a certain extent. Uh, You know, Unai Emery very rarely uses him off the bench. When he does use him off the bench, he doesn't make a massive impact. So it's kind of start or bust for him. Um, I don't think he's going to go anywhere, I would say, until the very end of his contract. So I'm not anticipating something like that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, again, he's one of those players that I think the theoretical capabilities and qualities he has that we believe he could bring to the squad and what he actually maybe brings to the squad at this stage of his career, there might be quite yeah. a delta between those two. Is that fair to say?
3: I, I think so, definitely. And I think that, you know, when we talk about Mesut Ozil, I think we do have in our mind a, a version of Mesut Ozil that was at the very least a few years ago, A very least a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's weird how, we're so worried about certain players sort of going over the hill in terms of age. You know, we're, we're so anxious that any minute Aubameyang could suddenly dip because he's 30. Uh, and with Ozil, we don't quite apply the same thing. And I think maybe because he hasn't got that explosive athleticism, we think it's not going to be such an issue. But when you look at his career, when you step back, when you look at the time that he played for Real Madrid and the age he was then, the age when he won the World Cup, uh, you know, you you would have to say his prime, his peak is some time ago. So I think, while I still think he has a contribution to make, I think expecting him to reach the levels that he has previously is probably a little bit unrealistic at this stage.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't care if you're an 18-year-old player just finding your way or you're Mesut Ozil at the tail end of your prime. When you play so little competitive football over a long stretch of time, I think yeah. it's difficult to maintain a high level. I mean, even Aaron Ramsey, who we all were really disappointed to see go, one of the, one of the hallmarks of Ramsey's Arsenal career was that it took him a few games run in the side to really start to hit his his peak of performance, and then injury would have him out. If Ozo's going to be just occasionally used by Emery, I struggle to see him really getting to the best of his game, and then you you wonder where we use him at all.
3: Yeah, well I uh, think about it, I mean Mesut Özil's game is what it's it's based primarily around his ability to uh, find players, you know, so it's based on relationships. It's based on relationships, it's based on understanding, you know, the runs of your teammates on on that intuition. And I think if you if you're not playing regularly, maybe that doesn't develop, yeah. you know, we're hoping that he's kind of going to be able to find Obameyang, find Pepe, but if if he doesn't get the opportunity, then it, it does bring that into question. Uh, I, I, you know, it's clearly a bit of a an unhappy marriage, I think, between Emery and Özil. And you know, there's every chance Özil outlasts Emery. You know, if we don't make the top four this season, I think there's a really significant chance that Özil will be here and Emery won't. But for the time they're here together, it always feels a little bit awkward. And when I look at the various shapes for this team, I find myself. Uh, putting us all sort of into a box that he's not necessarily happy. And so maybe it is the left wing or, or, or playing on the right hand side as an inside forward. I don't foresee too many shapes where I see him given the freedom, the number 10 role that he would desire. You know, because even when I think of trying to inject more creativity or more links between midfield and attack, I tend to think more of a Sabios. you know, doing it as, a, as an, as an eight breaking forward or, or Joe Willock, someone who's got that energy to go box to box. Then I do in terms of deploying a proper true old school playmaker.
1: Yeah. And I think that fits the system. I'm just not sure those players are as effective at that as we maybe would like to believe They're they're both wonderful players, but I think we've seen connect connectivity issues with them. And I mean, Willock played more advanced against Newcastle and I thought that was his lesser performance um, Mm. where he struggled with that role a little. So I don't know. I mean, the 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 thing will work itself out one way or the other, and it, it is a shame. It feels like a million years ago, but he was really good in preseason. He looked energized and, and interested in what was going on, and I, th- I thought he looked sharp. So, it's just a shame. I think that attack obviously put a put a stop to things in terms of his reintegration into the side, and I, I think that's unfortunate for the player and unfortunate for the team. Um, yeah. Speaking just of on, yeah. just
3: on Joe Willock, sorry, I was just going to say like. That's one of the things about Unai Emery is that when he does play what we might call a 10 or, or somebody off the striker, often he's not even looking for them to be the playmaker. You know, their role is, uh, you go. it goes right back to his first ever league game against Man City where he played Aaron Ramsey in, in, in that kind of role. It's an, an instigator of a press or almost someone to just, you know, close down the defenders or, or harry point, them or, yeah. or uh, sort of work defensively as much as anything. Um so, yeah, I, I just don't foresee that working out between Ozil and Emery, And it is a real shame because, as you say, he did have a bit of momentum going into the season. Then it was the rug was sort of pulled off from under him.
1: It's a great point. Really, really good point, actually, because like if you if you'd say what's the position Emery has most struggled to solve, it's probably mm-hmm. that one. He tried Ramsey as a, tr- a pressing trigger at the start of last season, and it, it didn't yep. really suit him. Um, Ozil doesn't really have the energy and intensity defensively off the ball for it. Uh, you know, he wanted Lacazette, I guess, to do it against Spurs in the Derby, right? With a flat three and Lacazette dropping in, and he mm. can kind of do it, but does he distribute well enough? I, I know Michael Cox wrote an article for the Athletic, sort of critical of that role for him. So it is, it is a problem that he's still trying to solve, and maybe that, maybe that will be Ceballos, but we'll find out. Um, in your capacity as as a, a world class journalist for the New Home of Football, you corrected <laughs> a story that had broken about Granite Shaka. Uh, give the opportunity to do it on microphone here. I think. It was said that he was going to get paternity leave, which I think everybody on this podcast is well in support of myself, especially with a baby on the way in December, but uh, that he was going to get paternity leave and step away from football for a bit. Looks like what you're saying makes a little more sense. He's just going to be given some time away during the international break around then. Is that right?
3: Yeah I spoke to a couple of the journalists involved it seems there was a bit of an issue uh, a mistranslation essentially one of the members of the current Swiss squad I forget who one of their strikers uh, has recently had the birth of a child and so was uh, relieved from uh, international duty and Granit Shacker was asked about that and he said you know I, I've got another child on the way uh, I think something similar it's going to happen with me potentially where I'm going to miss some international games and I think that's good and I think that's sort of fine and shows an understanding of our you know other other commitments outside football but I that somehow got spun into the idea that he might be stepping away from football altogether or club football just for a, a brief period but I don't I mean obviously you know if his wife goes on to, into labour on the day of a game that might influence things but I yeah, don't I would think hope there's so. any sort of plan <laughs> and yeah I don't think there's any uh, planned Rate for Granite Xhaka at all um in fact the latest I heard is that uh we're speaking on Tuesday no, Monday we're speaking on Monday uh over the weekend I heard that Unai Emery is still sort of regarding Granite Shacker as the captain of Arsenal Football Club so I, I don't think you know any fans sort of hoping it was when I tweeted that saying uh, correcting that story so many fans responded to me you know with sort of FFS or up in arms absolutely <laughs> that it devastated the granite Shack is going to be available in October. Um, Well, that was interesting, right? (laughs) Yes. Well, there is that, there is that there's hope still lives, but uh, I I do feel for him because, uh, well, I feel for him. I mean, I was as exasperated as anybody else, you know, during the derby with that, with that ridiculous foul, but he really, really is in that position now where the, the tide of public opinion has shifted against him. And I, don't think i don't really see what he could do that could possibly swing it back in his favor and uh you know that that doesn't bode well really for the relationship between him and the fans. so I, I do fear for him in that regard
1: yeah i mean I, I don't think he's a clown figure in the way that mustafi had become and i i, I re the uh the second half of of the derby did mm. a, a rewatch pod for for patreon and i have to admit like when you're not just focusing on the calamitous errors the dumb fouls he he was influential and he did good things in that second half but once again i mean I, I i think there were some statistics floating around and some people were a little bit dubious of the the degree to which you can rely on these figures but just about arsenal leading the errors leading to goals table over the last year and a half yeah. or so and i just wonder for a coach when you have a player that undermines your entire tactical plan with a moment of madness or, or stupidity it has to be exasperating and while he clearly got exasperated with mustafi and gave up on him it doesn't seem that he's at that level with Shaka. If anything, he seems very dependent upon him. Do you think that there is a, an end of the rope with him and Shaka, or do you feel that he will continue to be an ever present in the midfield?
3: Honestly, I think a lot of it rests on Uno Emery's assessment of Lucas Torreira. I really, really do. Um, the I think, role you know, he's it, using
1: him in is weird, and that, that right side of the more, more attacking side of the, the midfield.
3: Yeah, I think, I think what he's trying to do there is that he kind of likes that Torreira has the capacity to pl- close the space, you know, that yeah, he can that uh, break forward and, you know, close down in that way. But I, I agree it's not a role that he looks particularly comfortable in or, or massively well suited to i just think he's been a bit reticent to use him generally since around the winter of last year and uh he seems to me like you know someone who uh, well listen from the outside i would be picking him to start i like the intensity of his game mm-hmm. i like his game i think his game's more technically secure than he gets credit for i like that he's a competent tackler uh, we don't have too many of those in our team um but but I do think the former Matteo Genduzi as well, you know, spells trouble for Granite Shakir. I mean, he really is uh, growing. It feels like on a game by game basis, and, and I expect at some point in the season, as with any young player, there might be a dip. You know, there was a dip last season, but ultimately he recovered from it, and I'm sure that will come. But you know, when it comes to the midfield, I I, I kind of think that you look at Genduzi and you you probably want to try and build around that at this point. I mean, for me, he would be the the starting block of any midfield construction.
1: Yeah. Well, let's finish with this then. I I mean, look, you've reported on um the moves that were made to clear the way for Nelson, maybe not being moves mm. that Emery would have supported himself. There's a lot of reporting that he wanted Steven zanzi instead of Lucas torreira Yeah. It doesn't seem that management is too concerned with what Emery wants from a player personnel standpoint and that they are building a team based on a vision that they have that might be a bit independent of the coach. Which, hmm. to be fair, I think is how modern football is done and I don't have a problem with that, but it certainly isn't a ringing endorsement. Is there, and again, this is not meant to be Emory in or Emery out, just in your sort of predictive mindset, is there a scenario where Arsenal are not in the position they should be in the league table this season and Emery doesn't get to see out the season? And again... I'm not saying that happens. We could be in second place come New Year, and I'd be delighted. I'm only saying, do you think his situation is tenuous enough? And that with our rivals struggling, if we don't take advantage and we are you know, slumped down in sixth or something around the holidays, is there a scenario in your mind where they would move on from Emery as soon as during the season?
3: I think if you'd asked me a few months ago, I would have said, no, I think Emory will get the two years almost irrespective. But seeing the way that the club has behaved, and when I say the club, I mean those in executive power have behaved and acted in the last few weeks and months has changed my mind. And I think I think if, if our season was in jeopardy and our chances of Champions League qualification were in real jeopardy, I really believe they would pull the trigger on Una Emery. Um, and I think that is a positive thing. And I think we've all asked for accountability at this football club for a long time for players, for managers. And I think that does exist now. And I think there is a bit of a ruthlessness emerging in the culture that I've got a lot of time for. And I I think I like Uno Emery uh, more than many Arsenal fans. I sort of sympathise with some of the problems he's encountered in his reign uh, considerably. But... We should make the top four this season. I really think that. When I look at Manchester United, when I look at Chelsea, when I look at the the problems they're having, the, some of the growing pains they're enduring, even Spurs to an extent, I think we should make that top four. And if that is called into question, is called into risk, I think they need to do something. I don't think you know we are jumping the gun here. We are not at that point or, or close to it. But if it came to it, I think uh, I think Raúl and Emery, just because they're Spanish doesn't necessarily mean he, he'll never fire. I think he would.
1: Fair enough. Um, well, look, I I was in therapy for quite a while following the way you and Andrew tore each other to pieces on the post-Liverpool podcast <laughs> extra. And then you you suddenly went on holiday. Um, so yeah, you know, if you're uh, looking for a change, if you're looking for a new place to be, I know Clive's been trying to get out of our podcast for ages. We, we could always set something up, but hopefully you and Andrew will, will mend those fences and, and stay together long-term.
3: Well, listen, I'm supposed to be recording with him on a Wednesday this week. Let's see if he turns up. Hopefully, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I'll see him at sundown. No, no, I. I think I think we'll put things back together and I apologize for any any trauma uh, inflicted upon you.
1: Well as long as mommy and daddy are staying together, I'm happy. And uh congratulations. Yeah, for my will. sake. Well, thank you for the kids. Um congrats again on the athletic gig. I think what you're doing there is wonderful. Thanks again for coming on. Uh we'll listen to you on the cast if you do indeed show up there again and read you on the Athletic. James is on Twitter at Gunnerblog obviously. Thanks, James. Bye bye. All right, we'll come back with uh, you know, the usual schmoes after this. Stay with us. Okay, we want to tell you about the new home of football writing, The Athletic. And this is a company that means a lot to me. I have been honored to have the chance to write for them for the past year. And it is one of the best sports websites that I have had the pleasure of using. It gives you a chance to get totally ad-free content that isn't clickbait, that isn't chasing advertising revenue. Some of the best writers in the world are there. When it comes to Arsenal, it's the best coverage of Arsenal now. You have writers like Amy Lawrence and David Ornstein and, of course, Gunnar blog, James McNicholas as well. The app is fantastic. Uh, if you're driving along, it will read an article to you. Just read it to you, which I love. There's podcasts and videos and articles and fantasy sports. Plus, they cover everything. They cover all sports. So if you are uh, a fan of sports beyond just football, you're going to find world-class coverage of that, too. Um, it's Great wherever you're located. Obviously, they've just attracted phenomenal writers in the UK, but there's a great stable of fantastic journalists in the US as well, covering all those sports. So, uh, you want to support the pod and maybe give The Athletic a try? Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and check it out. You'll get a month free. Your subscription's 250 a month, which is nothing. And uh, when you go somewhere where you just read an article and nothing pops up and nothing gets in your way, and you can see the community there and see the quality of the content. I think you're really going to like it. So go there now, theathletic.com forward slash arsenal vision to sign up for The Athletic. Okay, we're back. And now, last but certainly not, and I emphasize this, certainly not, no wait, certainly least, Paul's on Twitter, pause New my pants, Pause. pause. And Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how cool is that, guys? Two fantastic guests. I mean, I know... You know, it can be annoying when we do all this promotional stuff and promoting The Athletic, but not too shabby, right? James and Michael, pretty good stuff. Um, I'm excited about it, anyway. Uh, But so let's do this. Let's have a little fun. Uh, We'll look ahead to Watford in just a second. We're doing something over on Patreon called Project 36, uh, and actually, you just have enough time, if you get in by the end of the day today, to enter the predictor, because we're giving away a shirt to the most accurate prediction. But basically we are predicting the outcome of the next 12 fixtures. You might say, well, why 12? Why not 20? Why not eight? Well, how do you pick that? So these 12 fixtures are a run where we've got a lot of favorable ones coming up. Um, really, the only really tricky games, you'd say, would be Leicester away and United away, although depending on how you rate us, you could say they're all tricky. But it's it's a crucial point in the season because from there, things get a little bit tricky. And with the holiday program and games against City and Chelsea and Spurs away down in, later in the season, a tough run for the run-in. This looks like where we could accumulate a lot of points. So, Clive, I'll start with you. Um, you know, in terms of the pros and cons of what could go right, what could go wrong, I think one of the big things here is that over this next 12 fixtures, we we probably get holding Bellerin and Tierney back. So for you, looking forward, is this period of getting them back, integrating them, and, and hopefully amassing a lot of points really our whole league season in a nutshell?
4: <laughs> I don't know about a whole league season. Should we just always... end the
1: league season after this 12th game?
4: No, I, I okay. see this. I say, where's my head with, with this at the moment? I always say this is the points accumulation phase. Right, This is the phase where you position yourself For the key period, just pre-Christmas. So it's a challenge for for clubs, particularly uh, top six clubs, because they have the European competitions coming in, and then they have to rotate, and then they they lack a little bit of rhythm, depending on travel. That Thursday-Sunday or Wednesday-Saturday thing is a bit tough. And this is a period where consistency is everything. And for the top two in particular... This is the time when they might drop a few points here and there just because of the logistics of European games. And it's the same for, obviously, Manchester United, Chelsea and Spurs as well and ourselves. So this is a test for us. And I think pre the last game um, against Spurs, we've just we got some questions to answer. And we're excited about we've got the talent to answer them. But it's probably a little bit of us wondering how they're going to be answered and how long it will take and what it will look like. And when are we going to see that game that we always seem to have once a year? A few years ago, it was a Chelsea 3-0, and it's, a, it's a Tottenham 4-2. We have that massive game that gets us all excited and we think we're going to win the European Cup and then suddenly <laughs> we come back to reality. That game is not far away. And For what me, that, that was the Bayern like?
1: Munich preseason game, by the way.
4: Okay, that game is not far away i I lose my mind and predict all sorts of things. and then so, but it's really interesting to see what balance we end up with. It's the key thing, and we could we could all three of us debate what that looks like, but maybe the talent differential between our better players and our worst players is not quite as big as it was last year. So the conversation, although interesting, doesn't come be so become soul-destroying because we're still going to have talented players on the pitch. I do feel the squad is stronger, more even, uh, more together, um, with lots of potential for big improvements. So this is the period where it's accumulation, but really, towards the end of it, the excuses for not finding the right balance are getting less and less. And that's for the major. I think between now and November-ish, this is his time to really show what he's got.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, you talked about having a game that makes you think we're going to win the European Cup. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I'm not bringing this up as a stick to beat Emery with, just something that I came across that is interesting. We've never won 3-0 or better over anyone since he's been here. uh, In the league, I should say. So... You know, I thought that was sort of an interesting point. I, I, you know, I just wonder if Emery's style is conducive to crushing the opposition. Uh, not that crushing the opposition gets you any extra points, but so just in terms of building that, that belief that, oh my gosh, here we come. We're, we're on fire. We're gonna, we're gonna tear someone up under Arsene Wenger. I feel like he always knew we could drop the dumbest of points, but around the corner somewhere there was a four or five nil hammering of some minnow. Hasn't really happened for Emery yet, but you know, with the attacking options he has now, maybe that's just around the corner. Let's look at this, Paul. A couple of things. That could maybe be pitfalls or potentially, you know, do the opposite. Help us uh, go from strength to strength. Springboard. There Springboard. There you go. That's the English word I was looking for. Um, so, we've sold or loaned out Mkhitaryan. We've mm-hmm. sold a Wobi. James spoke about this earlier in the pod, sort of what that means in terms of Nelson maybe coming in, Martinelli coming in. Um, Shaka maybe has a knock. Terreira maybe has a knock. So... One thing that we haven't talked about, this, the first 11, if there is such a thing, looks a lot stronger this season to me, but maybe the options for rotation and within the squad are a little weaker, or certainly, if not weaker, less experienced. With the Europa League coming back, how tricky a balance do you think that's going to be for him? Um, and to what extent do you worry, even slightly, that the the decision to move on, Nacho Monreal, uh, Alex Iwobi, Hendrick Mkhitaryan, could make this a little tougher just because of the paucity of options behind them.
5: Well, it always seemed a bit unreal this summer we had where we could just go out and buy players and and not worry about selling or loaning out players. Um, We're so accustomed to the mantra that you need to sell before you buy during the summer. We were told that many, many times. And while that seems like a good discipline, um, there are times when you really want to buy before you sell, and I'm sure we could all come up with scenarios and examples. But sometimes you gotta go and grab the best player, and then work out uh, afterwards what what the pieces are that are left, um, and, and what the monies are that are left, depending on who and who and what else you got out the door. So um, when I look at the Mkhitaryan sale. You know, there's the the narrative that hey, Raúl and Edu d- were making decision for Emery in terms of who was available to pick, and they want him to pick young players, so they moved out Iwobi, um who they could get a good price for, and Mikatarian in particular, uh, as they wanted to preference our youth and to to load the deck and make that choice for Emery, which may well be a uh, the primary or secondary motivation for it but it could just be they need to balance books and at the end of the day you look at Mkhitaryan and you say what are we getting for the money that we're paying him and and that's the decision there rather than let's force Emery to play Nelson and Martinelli and whoever else it's, it's a very interesting concept discussion topic but I, I guess I don't. I'm not as decided that they've forced his hand to Project Youth as opposed to books have to be balanced and Mkhitaryan's expensive and choices had to be made. And they sat down with Emery and said, "How are we going to get this done this year? You can have Pepe, but we're going to have to let some stuff go, and that may well be a Wobi and and He said, "Okay, I'll take that deal." Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how I feel. What that to me is what's going on with the Mkhitaryan thing. I mean, he's underwhelmed a little bit recently. Uh, it's a profile of player Emery likes. Um, he's had Iwobi. He's had Mkhitaryan. He had um, Dennis Suarez, your favourite. But as a profile of player, he likes somebody who can hover in those half spaces. And I guess right now we have Pepe on one side, who's kind of a different much more attacking kind of player, but he, he lives in that half space. Uh, he has Aubameyang on the other side. who's maybe not a natural in the half space, but that may be his starting position for a while. And then he's two youths. If you count in Martinelli and Nelson and I like Martinelli, but that's another topic.
1: Yeah. Well, considering that my question was uh, poorly worded and possibly poorly conceived as well, I appreciate what was an extensive and thoughtful answer. Um, Clive, Let's, let's have a little fun with this Project 36 thing. So for you, over the next 12 fixtures, given that this is probably the easiest run we have all season, putting aside the issue of fixture, conge- fixture congestion, easy for me to say, um, what do you think is par? So how many points do we need to pick up for you to say, job done, where fewer than that would be not good and more than that would be above expectation or requirement?
4: Okay, so in my mind, I I I want and hope Arsenal are best of and they finished third this season. That's what that's what I predicted and I and I hope that happens. So for that to happen and um, you know, I'm maybe not the best for this because you know me, I think I yeah, literally think, points, yeah. Oh I literally <laughs> think we can win every single game, right? But I I did the predictor. I think I may have come in at 30, 31 points. Ooh, from spicy. Night, that's right? pretty good. And I was really trying to be sensible when I'm thinking, I'm not sure where the spreadsheet's gonna go, but if it goes out into the wide world <laughs> people mm-hmm. are gonna laugh at me if I say thirty Six and so and, and and that's but that's where we should be you know i i really do think that i think um it, w- the points accumulation is one thing i have to be honest you know i'm i'm much more interested in where we end up selection balance systemically uh, i think this is so a key pro- process period.
1: over results and that's totally sensible yeah, obviously
4: i i really am i think there's some new players that are in they need to get to a level of fitness for Pepe, for example. Terreira needs to get up to a level of fitness. There's so obviously the fullbacks holding, there's so much in the to do list before we can talk about accountability, style. You know, it's just about what can we get done while we're still doing stuff to build the team we want to build. And going back to the previous question that Paul answered so brilliantly, I think <laughs> this, this is a points accumulation phase, but it's also for the squad, I think it's about their hierarchy, where they're going to sit within the system, new pathways being opened up, and I do expect some things to happen in January. I, I really do, depending on where we are. there's got <laughs> There's room to speculate, there's room transfer-wise, there's room... Wages wise. Well, we've cleared the decks a
1: bit, right? I mean, moving out of Woby and moving out McTarian and moving out Nacho. It may seem like it leaves us a little threadbare, but it it would feel like smart moves if it was in anticipation of, of doing more in January.
4: Yeah, maybe one or two, maybe maybe none. But I think I read somewhere we take out uh, eighteen players. I mean that is massive. You know my blow it up thing. I've always been tweeting for the last two, three years. Maybe it just happened, and we hadn't. You know, we're just realising it. Particularly maybe Mkhitaryan going. We started to look back and say, hold a minute here. None of us really predicted Mkhitaryan and Diwobe going. You know, so that's a significant change. Then you say to yourself, hold on. We've added in Pepe. We have brought back Nelson. We have a healthier Smith Rowe, and we've got Martinelli. So now these young players, they have a chance. There's a pathway there for them. There's plenty of gains for them. Let's see where they end up. I think we've seen the best of Mikatarian. Um, Whether we've seen the best of Alex Iwobi, I think we've seen the best of him. But maybe that's as high as he can get. But the gap between him falling off it's getting bigger and bigger and causing more frustration. And maybe this was just, he needed to go somewhere where he was viewed as a man, not a child. And he could really establish himself. And sometimes moves are good for all parties. And I think that may be one of them. Mm. And I wish him all of the very best. For absolutely, I really do. Apart from the here, plays against here. Us, yeah. Apart from playing against us, so it's just, we should be applauding that. Being a club since he was eight, nine years of age, that is a fantastic job. Well done by everybody at the club. Yeah, so, I totally agree. So, and so we have opportunity to see how good Nelson is. We have a certain player called Meza Erzul who doesn't mind sitting on one of the sides. We have opportunity to play one behind the front too. We are not bereft, but now the potential has to be realized and realized with a level of expectation and pressure and that is the final phase of building a young player what you do under pressure when expectation is upon you can you deliver in the key moments experienced players give you comfort that they can do that they don't always but the young players are now having the first opportunity here we are we're playing the game and one nil down away from home We're not asking you to run around and just put tackles in. We're asking you to take the ball, make the right decision under pressure in the last third and finish. But if they do start to do that, then of course the ceiling of the squad and the value of the squad becomes significantly higher. Mm. And a, a good example of that is watching young Daniel James at Manchester United, a player that was sharp, quite quick. He's got a few shots off, scored two or three goals. And he, his perception has changed, and it will change massively, because he's delivering. Smith-Rowe needs to do that when he gets healthy. Nelson, I believe, can do that when he gets healthy. Martin, is a bit more of an unknown, but there's opportunity there. And I think that is as exciting to me as the games, the totals. Yep etc. I really do think you said it beautifully. The process is what I'm really looking at in the next few games.
1: Yeah, and I would say that you will not find a finer example of erudition and articulation in avoiding a question than you have just demonstrated. Uh, So I I applaud you. I came close. Yes, you did, but he won up to you. So I am going to answer the question (laughs) that I posed. Look, two things. First of all, you know, people say it's it's speculation that Martinelli or Nelson or Willock or holding, can go on and and really go up a level and strengthen this team. But what I would argue is, look at our rivals in Chelsea and United. They need young players to go up a level to survive. Because unlike us, who have those players sort of in secondary roles, Rashford, Martial, Daniel James... You know, those guys are starting for United. Tammy Abraham, Christian Pulisic, Mason Mount. Those guys are starting for Chelsea. So I don't see why it's any crazier for us to expect a uh, an improvement in performance from our young players to make our squad bulletproof or certainly deeper when they're expecting that improvement just to get by. You know, and, and look, people saying, oh, Clive, 31 points from 36. Come on, 30 from 30. What gives you a belief we can do that? Last season, this time, Project 24, we took 22 points. Now, to Clive's point about process, we didn't take them well. <laughs> you know, we outperformed our XG, and there was a lot of hand-waving of that at the time, by me as well. We all wanted to believe the squad was going in the right direction. We were desperate for it. We wanted to ride that wave of euphoria, having not ridden one for a while. Um, there, there's just no denying, though, that it, it did come back to bite us. So I am with Clive in saying that, yes, we can pick up that many points. We showed, similarly, that we we could do it last season, but it's more important than ever that we do it playing well and finding cohesion along the way. And so, Paul, I will pose for you the question that Clive dodged, which is how many points is par? What from this next 12 fixtures, these 36, our easiest run, and I will emphasize that our hardest games in this run are United away and Leicester away. You know, Watford away this weekend, you could say, well, that's a tough one. Watford are propping up the table. They are dead last. And I, I don't think Kike Sanchez-Flores is exactly a mastermind coach You know, it's coming off an international break, so we'll have had a couple of weeks to train with those players because very few of them, well, I don't know. I'm going to say very few of them are internationals because I don't know their squad that well, but that may prove not true. But moral of the story is there's not a lot of fixtures there that really panic you. So if we're going to get top four, this is the period where we have to consolidate. So for you, what is par?
5: Yeah, so two points per game across the season will get us to 76 points. Um. Two points per game in these 12 games gets us to 24. Um, but, so,
1: but that's but, not good enough. Well, It's not because the problem is if yeah, you yeah, only yeah. get two points per game on your easiest yep. stretch, you're now saying you're going to get two points per game in your hardest stretch, yeah, yeah. which doesn't work.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. But I'm trying to set some parameters of, of reality here when we're looking and at And I appreciate it. you doing that. Uh, I think par is... It's not too much higher than that it's probably around the 26 ish points mark i think i actually got us at 27 um that was what i ended up doing in in my mix of it i think 26 27 is i i think if we do 27 we're doing pretty good i think it's 26 it's only a little bit north of of 24 i think that's kind of the range for me it feels about right you start doing much more than that you're having to win away at leicester not that it's not possible but uh that's not the easiest fixture fixture in the world uh you got to avoid all draws and as there was an analogy somebody came up with um on the discord about um You know, you you can look at each of these fixtures, and almost every one of them put us down for a win, but that's that's not how it works out. And his analogy was a coin that flips seventy percent one side and thirty percent the other, and you do a bunch of coin flips. Of course, for each coin flip, you're going to pick the seventy percent side, but if you do 12 coin flicks, there's going to be two or three that don't that don't hit and that's about right for this. So yeah. we're going to we're going to have some draws, we're going to have some teething problems. We're going to have an injury or two. <clears throat> we're going to have a dull day. Um but it seems to me like 27 would be a good number and anything above that would be gravy.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's just that like when you start getting below 26 because, all right, say we yeah. lose at Leicester or, and lose at United, which I don't think that's a given. I mean, those teams aren't amazing. It's not like we can't get points against them. But that would put you down to 30. Yep. You now need to drop three more points or more if you're going to be below 26. And that's at least another loss. And now you're talking about, like, are we going to lose at Sheffield United? Are we going to lose, you know, home to Aston Villa? Are we going to lose... Uh, home to Southampton? Are we going to lose home to Brighton? You know, don't want to bring up Way bad to Sheffield
5: there. United, yeah. Yeah, I mean... But, so, but shit happens is the of course, problem.
1: Of course, I'm just saying... Right, that, like, especially
5: in a low-scoring sport.
1: Yeah, no, uh, and, and of course that could happen. I'm just saying, like, once you start dipping... Even though that sounds like a lot of points to pick up over this period, you start having us dropping some bad points to get us lower than that. And are we a team capable of dropping bad points? Absolutely we are. I just think... If we're going to finish top four, this period becomes so important because if we don't, as I said to you, Paul, if we don't get the two-point-per-game over this period, now you're looking at periods where we have much harder games, much more fixture congestion, the holiday period. I mean, there's a four-game run in April where I believe it's Wolves away, Leicester home, Spurs away, Liverpool home. That's yeah. that's tricky. Are we going to pick up two points per game over that? Almost certainly not. So
5: and I think in particular a challenge with us is we're a low shooting team or have been historically. Yeah. Now, maybe Pepe will help, help change that. but if if you're only getting a small number of uh, of shots off relatively and things don't go to plan, uh, we've just got to up our shot number and our uh, that's really what that'll be the end of the pitch I'm looking at. If we're I mean these are the good months, the weather's decent, the pitches are good. Um, we're mostly healthy, and we just got to get a bunch of shots off, like we did against Tottenham. Though that was a lot to do with game state. But I think if we're a very proactive attacking team, <clears throat> um, using our front three, getting getting some bias on the pitch as much as possible, and get a bunch of shots off, then <clears throat> we'll. I passed it to you. <laughs> yeah, we'll have the volume, the shot volume there. Whereas when your shot volumes, no, you need low. You need a high conversion rate. And shit happens, and you have a, a bad game, or things go against you. So yeah. that'll be the end of the pitch. I'm looking at to see if we can really uh, that'll be the difference between a bunch of draws and a bunch of wins. I think.
1: Clive, do you do you now? It seems want to engage on the topic, which I attempted to get <laughs> so, you to engage in before, but, but no, for some no, no, now, yeah. now I'm, I'm still.
4: <laughs> I'm not gonna. I gonna I gave you a number around thirty, thirty-one, but really, I think it's. Um, I, I'm going to go back on the the process thing. I think this time last year when we had the the twenty-two points, were really different twenty-four. We, know, we was all excited, but I think during the same period, I think we may have lost our chief executive. Um, we may there there was a level of trying to understand the manager. I think a few months later, we then lost uh, our chief scout. And there was a bit of a bumpier road organizationally. So the process, even though we accumulated points, like you said earlier, I think there were some suspicions that we may be overachieved during that period. And there was still some internal rank uh, fractions within the club that were causing issues with Herzl, Ramsey, etc., etc. This year, a lot of that has gone. This year, the structure and organization is stronger. So I feel if we were to have a similar strong period, we would all feel different about it because we know a bit more about the people. We've seen how they operate. We understand more about the structure in the club and who's doing what role. And I think if you put a result on top of that, it feels completely different. what it would have done a year ago and so at the end of it if we do get this good of points accumulation and we separate ourselves away from some of the teams which are looking quite plucky at the moment and quite inconsistent and we get closer to the top two and we separate maybe from third uh, sorry from fourth fifth six etc i think that's a massive tick because what it will do it will establish us Directionally, as going forward positively, and and when they turn around and look under the covers, they will see a club that's now got the right organisation and are not afraid to take decisions, and that's all pointing towards this being the start of something, rather than just a, a dead cat bounce post generational manager. Do mm. you what I mean? And yeah. I think mm-hmm. there's a difference to this, and this is why I'm ultra positive, as you know. But I'm 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 almost excited because I'm fast forwarding i fast forwarding to where we could be, and if we get there in shape, with money in our pockets for January, and we're in good shape, and we've reestablished ourselves by travelling away and winning consistently in a style that be more becoming of the club, and more at least we understand it a bit more. I think that impact will be much, much, much greater than the 22 point impact of last year, and that really sees us into 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 2020 we really start to solidify our ambitions. Mm. When we get to January, I'm not expecting a Denis Suarez to come in. I'm expecting something to come in with has got a plan around it. And the reason why, because we've demonstrated this summer. And if we do nothing, it's because the players that we've allowed the pathway to get into the first team have been so successful that we don't need to do anything. You know, so I think either way we're ready to go. Either way.
1: Yeah, and you know one thing that I haven't really considered and I think in this season it is fair to consider it um you know we say two points per game gets you to 76 points and that's good 76 points could be a lot closer to second than it is to fourth it's not unreasonable to think that Chelsea and United and maybe even Arsenal you know if this is a a season where 64 points is fourth you know it wasn't that long ago where that was in the conversation for fourth and given the way United and Chelsea look at the moment, and to be fair, maybe the way we've looked so far and the relative strength of the league and teams kind of beating up on each other and everybody being able to win on any given day at the moment, it it may only require a a high 60s point total to secure fourth. And that, that certainly makes what we need from this run look a little different. Paul, I mean, for me... The success of this run is going to hinge on integration of the players I mentioned earlier, on cohesion of a system, which, you know, maybe maybe that's not the case, but that's something that I've been banging on about for a while, so why stop now? But I think it's really, really down to managing the squad now more than ever. Europa League is back, and boy, have we missed it. (laughs) Uh, We play Nottingham Forest in the League Cup at home on the, the 24th of September. Is... The way Emery rotates and his ability to show a reliance on youngsters and really just sort of chuck the Europa League at least in the early stages of the group, a, a key component to us planting our flag in the Premier League over this next twelve fixtures.
5: Yeah, I think so. And when we knocked names around, I mean, uh, he'll still have a pretty good second
4: Hang eleven. On. Can you stop for a second? Yeah.
1: Clive, are you using the bathroom or showering?
4: Oh, I'm gonna mute me. Oh, all
1: right, Paul. So, were, you, were you doing this from the bathroom? Were you possibly going potty?
4: No, it's my. There's
5: some construction oh, outside. Okay, Is it no bad? I I can move.
1: Just someone sounded like they had a very room. healthy stream going on in the background. And congratulations to them. Okay, continue. I apologize.
5: No, there's a bit of construction. No. Way. Okay. <clears throat> uh, right. So where was I?
1: Uh. Into, okay. Into, yeah. yeah ro- rotating squad rotation. Yes.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So. When you look at it, I mean, we ha- still have a f- pretty much substantial second 11 here that will need minutes and time, assuming uh, not too many injuries here. I mean, you have some pretty uh, experienced players to fill out that second 11. And then you add in the kids, and there are some kids in that second 11, your Nelsons, Willocks, etc. Um, assuming we don't get a lot of injuries over the next month or two, I mean – you you kind of get the best of both, where you, you you may have, I mean, I'd love to see Ozil become a fixture and establish himself based on merit as a as a fixture in the first eleven. But if if he's in and out, if if Mustafi's on the bench, um, you know, I, I like to bring these things up just to keep people in the real world. Rankled. If we've got to, yeah, if we've got a holding coming back, if Tierney's coming in, and him and Kola are. Um, Rotating, etc. So you go around the lineup. The only thing we're really missing is a striker uh, in the second eleven. If we're playing Alba, Laka, and uh, Pepe every game in the front three, but there'll probably be a bit of rotation there, or somebody playing 60 minutes versus 30, and you'll have conniptions when when you know Lacazette is played in the Europa League when he played 30 minutes in the Premier League Correct. and I yes, won't. So.
1: Mm-hmm. No I won't.
5: And I won't but but I think it, that's where the line is. I think I actually think most of his choices are fairly reasonable and easy to play a fairly strong Europa League team but keeping basically your first choice 11 out of that rotation for the most part you really shouldn't have to play very many of them when you when you start filling it out. But And the kids won't go that deep either because you're still going to have people like Saka, uh, Smith-Rowe, Nelson, Martinelli, uh, Mart- Emmy Martinez, uh, Maitland-Niles, Niles, or be- Bellerin on the, you know, Willock. It's, it's going to be a pretty youthful team without having to go to names that people don't know so well. You know, Burton, who was part of our squad. Um, uh, I mean, John Jules might struggle to, to be an automatic uh, candidate for the Europa League, but but he's kind of in that next bunch just below that. Um, I don't think we'll have to go to names we haven't seen before or haven't done before um, to have a still pretty healthy Europa League uh, group stage set up. So I don't, I mean, unless, I'd be very pretty upset with them if we start seeing a lot of Premier League first team Starters in his Europa League group games because there's absolutely no need, and he doesn't have to play the kids in mm. quotes.
1: Yeah, I'd say especially the older statesmen, right? Like Aubameyang, Lacazette. Um, yeah. I was going to name elder statesmen in midfield, but we don't really have too many of them. I guess it would be Shaka, but as you probably yeah. could guess, I'm fine with Shaka starting in the Europa League. Um, you know, maybe Louise and Socrates certainly both shouldn't be starting those games. Um, you know, the interesting thing is this sets up perfectly. You know the conniption fit you talked about me having? Yeah. This sets up perfectly for it because our very first Europa League game is Eintracht Frankfurt away, which is our hardest one in the group. And you could totally understand him saying, I don't want to start the group with a loss. I'll play a really strong side there and then rotate from there because if you pick up three points there, you could play kids the rest of the way and you're you're breezing through the group. But it sets up perfectly because if our first Europa League game is basically our Premier League starting eleven then I can really have kittens and throw a fit, and it'll be everyone's entertainment. So, Clive, let's wrap up real quick with a look ahead to Watford. They've sacked their manager. Of course we get to face the new manager bounce, although I don't know that Kike Sanchez-Flores is a manager that that put strikes the fear of God into you. Having said that, um, it is a way. They are propping up the table. That doesn't mean they can't be dangerous. How worried are you about this fixture, and what do you expect from Arsenal?
4: yeah I always worry about his fixture but I don't think they're the same team as they used to be I don't have the same fear of their physicality in particular uh, uh, hurting us and I think they've got a lot of issues I've think they only got one point so far so there's a lot of pressure on them I suppose when you get a new manager it's a live on Sky game I think on the Sunday primetime TV post international break maybe the extra day will be good for us to help some of our travellers settle down but Again, I think it's much more about us establishing ourselves as not a soft touch any longer. We've got to make sure, you know, the lasting memory of the Spurs game was the tenacity and intensity and the desperation not to be beaten, which could have easily ended up in a win. I want to see that a lot more. I don't want us to go to these clubs and accept a defeat or a drop points like we've done in the past at Southampton West Ham and Brighton we just sort of roll in and walk out meekly and these teams they want to have their day against one of the top six clubs and we're the favourites and the easy ones have their day against them maybe Manchester United I don't like that I think it's very important we establish ourselves having a strong chin you can't just knock us out We're going to run with you and then we're going to outplay you and take you. I think, you know, that's really important. I think we can do that. I don't fear the physicality of Watford as I used to. I think we've got a bit more experience at both ends of the pitch and we've we've got second-year midfielders in the centre midfield, whoever's fit and available, and um, I think we'll take them no problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, they have 5.24 expected goals. for. they have scored two. They have 6.19 expected goals against They've conceded eight. So you could say they've been running a little bit unlucky, I guess. Um, You know, and that's understat from understat.com. So that's their data. I don't know if that lines up with everyone else's. They drew away to Newcastle. They got thumped by West Ham 3-1. Worth noting, they produced 2.29 XG in that game. So, you know, some might have been game state trailing most of the game. Gave away an early penalty. They got hammered at home by Brighton 3-0 in the opening game of the season. Um, so
4: that was cert- really. it was uh, unexpected, really. Yeah, I
1: think losing 3 0 to Brighton anywhere is unexpected, let alone at home on opening day.
4: So it's quite interesting. They played the back three in the last game, which I, you know, was quite interesting. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to see what they do this game. <laughs> Obviously, none of us know how to go line up because mm. uh, Kike Flores might decide to go back to a back four and go 4 4 2. But, um, these you know, managers
1: have faced each other in Spain. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he's got, you know, Flores has any feel for uh, Emery. If you want to see an interesting thread, 7 a.m. kickoff on Twitter, Rewatched uh Valencia game, I, who, who, who did it? Atletico Madrid. Uh, Atletico Madrid, yeah, when Flores was there and had some thoughts on that. Uh, so you can go look at that. We'll finish with you, Paul, just real quick. Expectations for the lineup and the result?
5: Uh, For the result, I mean, I can be nervous about any game, but we should we should beat him. I think this feels like a 3-1-er three- incoming. We don't do 3-0. Three- we always let them have the 1. Um, I think it mollifies them. It's like when you're climbing over a, a fence into a compound, but you throw the Doberman a stake, a drugged stake. I think that's what that three, the 1 goal in the 3-1 three- is. Uh, line-up, 4-3-3. Uh, four- three- three, uh, oh, God. Jack Ch- Ch- Ganduzi. Sabalas, and uh, P.A.L. up front.
1: Cool. Yeah, I mean, is Shaka hurt? I mean, do we know if he came back with a little bit of a knock? Because I understand Torreira did as well. Yeah,
5: he he does tend to be bulletproof, though, so.
1: Yeah, both in terms of the manager picking him and his physicality. All right, score prediction, Clive?
4: Yeah, I go for Mm. (laughs)
1: 4-1.
4: 4-1.
1: I'll say 10-0 to the Arsenal. <clears throat> it's just sort of how I see it. And anyway, Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, pause. Woo-hoo. <coughs> Clive's on Twitter. Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive.
4: Thank you very much.
1: And look, I, I just want to thank everybody. Um, as always, you know, not just for listening and sign up, on Patreon and all that, but I know uh, a lot of you have signed up for the athletic, but some of you are like, look, I get it. Sign up for the athletic, like enough already. And while I appreciate that sometimes the promotional stuff can be tedious, uh, When you get to hear Michael Cox on the pod and get to hear James McNicholas on the pod and get to hear Amy Lawrence on the pod, like I hope that that is something that everybody's really enjoying and we'll continue to be able to get some great guests like that and and make the pod hopefully just a lot more enjoyable than ever and not just have to hear uh, uh, from us constantly banging on. So... You know, for those of you who have signed up at theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision, we appreciate it. For those of you who haven't and don't want to hear the promotion anymore, my hope is that you'll sort of just forgive us the extra promotion with the understanding that that it does help us uh, make a better pod, right? I mean, good interviews, good guests, good content. That's the whole idea. So in anyway, uh, we do love you and appreciate you for it. And uh, over on the Patreon side, if you win the Project 36 Predictor, you get a shirt. So, you know, if you want to join up for that, certainly can, but also just all the extra pods and stuff. And if not... We got a lot more of these to come. So everybody wins, including hopefully the Arsenal. <laughs> That's most important. In any event, my name is Alex me Blackman, Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Give us a five star review. Write nasty things about Tim. He'll be back next week. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Watt for no-